Uh, let us now turn to Genesis chapter, I mean, yeah, Genesis chapter 42, and we'll read the first 24 verses there for our scripture reading this morning. Genesis 42, 1 through 24. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin, which his brother, uh, which with his brothers, for he said, lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my lord, uh, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. But he said to them, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and in fact the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not leave this place until your youngest brother comes, comes here. Send one of you, and uh, let him... Bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your worlds may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to our prison, to your prison house, but you go and carry again, carry grain for the famine to your houses, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we did not, we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. May the Lord bless this good uh, this good reading that we have uh, just read for our benefit. 
The title of the sermon this morning is the Imagio Dei and uh, Family, or and our families. The Imagio Dei is a Latin term that means the image of God. And um, it's one of the ways that we define human beings as they were created by God. We use this Latin phrase, and it's been a generally agreed upon idea uh, as being genuinely scriptural from the very beginning. And it's, uh, it's a common parlance for all the Reformed faith, and indeed most evangelicals understand it this way, uh, if they understand it at all. The, 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 the phrase comes in when we ask ourselves, what, what is the essence of man? How, how do we define human beings, men, women, and children? How do we define them in the most rudimentary, fundamental way possible? And it's at that point where we invoke this idea of the Imagio Dei. Because we, we remember how God created us, that he formed us of the dust of the earth, but then he breathed life into us. He gave us life through the breath of his spirit, and the, the same spirit that created the world and created us, then uh, created our own soul. And as he created us, uh, as he breathed upon us, uh, we, we see so many coordinations between ourselves and the Lord. There are even what we call uh, communicable attributes of God. These are attributes of God, but they are attributes of God that we see in ourselves, not in a divine sense, but in an analogical sense. In other words, by degree. Uh, so God is all-wise. God is all-knowing. God is uh, omnipotent in his knowledge. His knowledge cannot be searched out. Ours is far from that. I've already prayed this morning about my own lack of knowledge. I've confessed from my inability to carry a tune for three lines, you know. So our knowledge is very partial and haphazard in a sense. But even as we see that, we see that we are so different from the other animals. Animals have uh, some of the, the brightest animals, uh, uh, like uh, dolphins or monkeys. They have a wisdom, they have a, uh, a knowledge, but it's, it's only after a fashion. They cannot uh, really reflect upon the meaning of their life, or they cannot uh, really sense uh, uh, great sorrow in the sense that a human being can do. So when we look at the human being in this way, we we see that we are uh, created after the image and the likeness of God, as it says in, uh, in Genesis 1. And we see that we are God's special creation. And that we see that not only does he give us this knowledge, but he gives us a spiritual component where we can actually commune with him and worship him and adore him and love him in a spiritual way. And uh, it's it's all of those, it's that matrix of values that we trace back to the image of God that he has created us in his likeness and image, as it says in Genesis 1 and 3. So, um, um, this is a given. But of course, the world... We've already been talking about the rebellion of man this morning. And the, the world will, does not accept this. They just treat it as a kind of a magical thing. It's just, it's just what we find out there. They have no explanation for why we are so different. Many of them try to prove that we are like the monkey or like, uh, like the dolphin. Or they, they, they like to make comparisons and say, well, we're not really all that different. So uh, they, um, they, 
diminish or uh, lower their understanding about the image of God as we would confess it as Christians. And yet they have no, they have no explanation for our ideas of beauty, of righteousness, of good, goodness and evil. Uh, there is no difference. If we are simply physical things, if we're simply materialistic, um, our combinations of material specks or blobs, then there is no morality. There is no right and wrong in the, in the sense that we so easily speak of it. But the worldlings, the humanists of this world, they, they use the parlance of Christianity, the parlance of, of Christian thinking, to embellish themselves with value and with significance and strength of mind and beauty and these kinds of things without any background or without any substantial argument for how or why these things exist or why they are. And at that point, we have a huge advantage over them because we know why these things are. Why, why do we say that they are? Because God told us that. And, uh, you know, even as we grow up as little children, the things that we the things that we hold on to the dearest or the things that we uh, are most secure with are those things that we were told by our parents. And that's part of the image of God in us. God made us so that we would, we would be uh, sexual creatures who would have successive generations and where each generation is dear to the next. Um, and uh, the youngest generation is dear to the older generation that it's about to pass out of existence just because of how special we are as creatures. So this text, this passage, it deals with this as it's manifested in the conversations and the thought patterns that we see revealed here. Because God in this text reveals what's going on in the minds of the individuals. And as we search the minds of that which is revealed, we see amazing things. We see, uh, we see evidence and uh, and information about this imago Dei that's in us, and it ought to make us want to be more transparent before the Lord. We, we ought to say to ourselves, if we can learn that much from a passage of Scripture like this, if we can learn how God, how God can reveal this about us in a, in a book like this, well, then why in the world do we make such efforts at pretending before God that we are different than we are? That we're innocent when we're guilty? That when we're, when we're conceiving sin in our minds, that we're not conceiving sin in our minds? That there are these exterior, extraneous reasons why that's perfectly normal. Because the brothers all did this with the selling of Joseph into slavery. But now, years later, their sin, their deed comes back to them with a crystalline clarity. We know that our own souls, our own consciences, witness against us. So in the general exhortation of the message, you know, this, this, this should drive us to a greater sanctification. This should drive us to a greater transparency before the Lord. When the, when the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know me, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know me, that, that, that there be no wicked thing in me. This is an earnest prayer that ought to be ours. It ought to have meaning. So let's look at this quickly. Uh, let's look at this um, uh, text and just bring out some of these things. Now, I've got, uh, in, in the sermon outline at the bottom of the page here, I've got uh, five different verses that I want to draw something from. And at the end, I've got a blank. And I've got some little arrows 
that point down at the blanks. So what I'd like you to do is I, at, at the end of each one, I'd like you to write in the the uh, attribute of God or the dimension of God, the the, uh, the image of God that then we find example exemplified in uh, in these in these verses. So first of all, we come to Jacob's mind, and we see that mind working defensively post fall. Jacob sends his sons to Egypt to get obtain grain, but what does he do? In verse four, he restricts or restrains the the, the passage. Uh, he keeps Benjamin with himself. And what does he say in verse four? He says, uh, "Lest some calamity befall him." Now we see here this capacity in man to hypothesize about other alternative consequences to our actions. Um, the animal world may do this in a brutish way, like uh, a, a fox being afraid to, knowing that there are traps and not wanting to put his foot in a trap. Uh, so we see it a little bit in the animal world, but nothing like this. Uh, Jacob recognizes he recognizes the Lord is with him, but he also recognizes that God has given uh, given him him and his family up to some very unhappy consequences. Uh, he's lost Joseph. He thinks Joseph is dead. He's sending all the rest of the boys down, but he, he, he retains just one of his sons, so that if all the rest of them are wiped out, that he at least has one son left, that he can... Uh, Rejoice with and uh, and uh, deposit his life's values and uh, the continuity of his life uh, with or in. And so this this um, this witnesses to the omniscience of God. With the omniscience of God, that's what that's for the blank. The omniscience of God. It's spelled omniscience. 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 And uh, this. This comes from God's ability to know. He knows everything, and not in any kind of a consequential way, any kind, any kind of an order. He knows it all simultaneously. So the Lord does not have to think like we do, reasoning from point to point to point to point. God knows all things immediately. Now that's the that's the divine omniscience. But we have a we we don't have omniscience in the same in the in any way like God. But we do have knowledge. Uh, that is a, a, an analogically related to the all-knowingness of God. We know God is all-knowing. And so Jacob is able to reflect upon the dangers of this world. He, hold, he holds on to the promises of God, but he also knows that God teaches us to be careful in this life and to, to reason our way along and, and uh, to always be ready to save ourselves from worse consequences. And so that's the first thing we see from this. And then in verse 7, uh, we see Jacob, who acts like a stranger when his brothers show up. His brothers have heard that there is grain in Egypt, and so they show up. And in verse 7, there's such a touching story, but this is the first part of it. But Joseph, all the people that are coming to Joseph from around the world at that time, all this endless stream of people, Lo and behold, who shows up one day but these familiar faces that he recognizes from the past, his brothers. And uh, they came in, 
bowed down before him as they would, as all the rest of the people did. They, they just knew that uh, they were taking their life in their hands by being disrespectful to Pharaoh's prime minister, in this case, Joseph. So they bowed down before him. And it says in verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. And all through this, the, the different developments of this, you have to remember, Joseph is speaking in the language of Egypt. He's not speaking the language of the Hebrews. So he recognized his brothers. They came and they spoke in Hebrew and there would be interpreters there who would interpret the Hebrew for the court of Pharaoh. And then Jacob and then Joseph spoke to them back in Hebrew and there would be interpreters that interpreted what he was saying back to his brothers. So he recognized the brothers right away, but they, they did not recognize this Egyptian-speaking man. Uh, that seems quite hostile to them. They hang in there, they abide, but they uh, they have no confidence. But what I wanted to ask you about was so was 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 Jacob uh, righteous and acting like a stranger to them? What uh, was was he, were his actions sinful? And are God's actions toward us are righteous or sinful when God uh, does this kind of thing with us? And very often in God's providence, he brings hard things upon us when his end is blessing. The end of the hard things is to, to bless us in the end. But he brings the hard things into our lives first. Is that dishonest of God? Was it dishonest of, of Joseph to speak harshly to his brothers, to call them spies and that sort of, to make these suppositions about their ways, and to test them in these ways? Was that wrong? Well, uh, no, because that, that arose from the thing, the, the word for the blank there is holiness and righteousness. Uh, J, uh, Joseph was, was replicating uh, the behavior of a, of a holy person against uh, an unrighteous person. Uh, when, when we sin against God, we have no rights whatsoever. We, uh, we cannot... Uh, we cannot come in before the Lord and say, well, I'm guilty at point A, B, C, and D, but I do have F going for me, or G, or L, or M, N, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, the sin of our lives disqualifies us from every other uh, right that we might claim before the face of God. And so uh, Jacob or Joseph has every right, given what his brothers have done, and he knows what his brothers have done, he has every right to be demanding of them, to put them through a test. Uh, he, because, and we know from the end, we, we know that uh, when Joseph breaks down in tears, which he, which he does many times during this intercession uh, that his brothers bring him, we know that, that he, um, and this is brought out in the last point, that Joseph wept, but we know that this comes from something deep within Joseph that has to do with love, the, the love of Joseph and for his brother. So uh, at, the, at the, so one of the same time, he's both angry with his brothers, righteously angry, not unrighteously angry. And some people think that it's impossible to be righteously angry. But uh, if, you, if you do, you've got something coming, a surprise, because the Lord is absolutely righteous in all of his anger. And that is one of the most terrifying dimensions of his anger. There's no there's no weakness in his anger. His anger is all uh, based on pure gold, pure pure goodness, and uh, there's, there's no anger that is more fearsome than an anger like that. So 
did Jason, did Jacob act like a stranger? No, we can say. Uh, because he exhibited something of the holiness of God, which is able to deal with sin and not sully itself in sin. Number three, verse nine, we see that Joseph remembers his childhood dreams. It says in verse nine, but this kind of characterizes that which went before when the, when the brothers fell down before him and bowed before him. It says in verse 9, Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, You are spies, you have come to see the nakedness of the land. So, uh, as this scene is going on before Joseph, Joseph's brain immediately goes back to this prophecy that God filled his mind with. God inspired Joseph. Joseph was a prophet. He was one to whom God spoke truth and revealed things that would not be known by ordinary means. And one of the things that he revealed was um, that his brothers would, uh, and even his father and his mother, would bow down before him. And even his father recoiled about that and said, Son, you know, what are you talking about? Why are you, well, you know, you're just going to inspire uh, envy and wrath in people if you speak this way as a young boy. But, Joe, they, but, he, but, he, but remember when I preached on this, I said the one thing was that, that Jacob pondered these things in his mind because he knew it was extravagant on Joseph's part, but on the other hand, he'd seen God do enough strange things that he, he did not want to declare with certainty that his son was misbehaving. He wanted to ponder these things and see what God would do with him. But Jacob's or Joseph's mind goes back to this instantaneously. Because there were things about this that he did not understand. But now he sees his brother bowing down before him. <laughs> and he realizes God has been with me even from these early days. When, when you see the Lord reveal things to you like this, it humbles you that, that God would entertain, would take up any time, any of his divine time with uh, with dealing with us as human, fallible creatures. But uh, Joseph, it flashes a flashback in Joseph's mind. And, um, and this, this also goes to the knowledge of God and the knowledge that God has endued to us the, from the omniscience, uh, the, the, based on the omniscience of God or the knowledge of God. So you can put in, the, in, these, in that line, uh, omniscience, omniscience or knowledge, <clears throat> to, uh, to uh, know what I'm trying to focus on there. Uh, but this is, because God is all-knowing, uh, we are, he created us knowing, he created us with this image in us that is just really marvelous and, and perplexes us sometimes because we think of things and we wonder why we think of these things. How, how can we... Um, hypothesize the things that we hypothesize. Some of these things are even related to our vocations. You know, scientists, and some of you deal with digital logic and uh, uh, virtual reality, and uh, God has given you a capacity to, to uh, hypothesize about these things. You have a kind of an intuition for these things. Others of it, we've got our friend Dan here with us this morning, he's a tradesman, and uh, he can just see, he can see where he can make money on getting one thing that one person doesn't want into another set of hands of somebody that wants these things. 
And this all goes back to the knowledge that God put within us to ascertain, to hypothesize, to determine, to deduce, and uh, draw conclusions about these things. So uh, in verse 9, Joseph remembers these, remembers these dreams. Then I'm going to skip to verse 21. Uh, a, a little bit longer portion because here we see the brothers' consciences immediately afflicted them. First, J Joseph put them all in jail and said he was going to only send one back, keep them all in Egypt. But he changes his mind and he only keeps one and he sends the rest back. Uh, it shows that the prophet doesn't always understand everything about his prophecy. In this case, he may have reflected about his father and he may have thought, my father won't live if, if only one boy comes back. My father's going to have a heart attack. So whatever the reasons were, he thinks about these things and he relents. And so he uh, he says that he's going to, they're, they're in jail, though, at that, at that time. And they say in verse 21, uh, they, and it says they said to one another. So they, this was a general uh, movement of conscience in the minds of the brothers. They then said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Now, if we, had, if we had taken what they say here, if we had taken and hypothesized that upon them back when they sold their brother into sin, we would be wrong in the sense that we would be, uh, we would be uh, just guessing about these things instead of going by the scripture. But here we, we see scripture interpreting what happened back then. And so when, when they went to sell Joseph to the wandering caravan, they, it says that they saw anguish in his soul. We, we hear now that he pleaded with them, brothers, don't do this to me. Why, why are you doing this? Don't take me away from my father. Don't take me away from you. And so all of this took place, and we, the, all of the colors of that enterprise are painted out. And he says, and they say of themselves, this is not even Joseph speaking of them. They say of themselves, we would not hear. They say, they see in their own hearts the intransigence of sin. We would not hear. They, they see that it's a matter of willpower, of will choice. They would not hear. Doesn't that they couldn't hear. Didn't, it didn't mean that they didn't know the consequences of these things. But their willpower, the heart that controls the choices, the heart would not hear of a better way. The heart would not take the righteous behavior and pull it back. So if the horse could not run along at a full gallop in sin, it would not do this. And brothers and sisters, is this not a picture of us and our lives and our behaviors? There are times when we know there's a right right way and a wrong way or, or a, a, wrong, a, a better way than the ways that we determine, and yet we will not do those things because of the intransigence of our natures. Oh, we thank, we thank the Lord for his battling with us and these, and these uh, selling souls of ours. We, we praise the Lord for every good thing that he works up in our hearts because we see that there is more than enough evil to go around. And uh, these consciences of ours, in terms of the 
the nature of God, the personality of God, they go back to the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is one of the attributes of God. Righteousness. God, uh, God is not only the originator and the giver of law, the, the publisher of law to the mind of men, but his own actions are inscrutably righteous at every turn. There is no shadow of turning with the Lord. Every evil that is done in this world that is done by the determinant sovereignty of God is never evil in and of itself because of its purposes, of its ends, of its origination, of its context. The Lord is righteous. And this is why Jesus as he exemplified this behavior, this personality in this world, he agitated men so badly. Uh, when he was in the temple and he had cleansed the temple and the men surrounded him to take him, to punish him, to maybe even kill him by a mob assault, it says that he walked out amongst them. He just walked through them. And part of the explanation for that is as the the uh, divine righteousness of his soul overwhelmed them so that they could not deal with it. The holiness of God, as it manifested itself with him, they could not deal with it. And so he walked amongst them. He walked out. And people, commentators, say, how, how could this be? Well, he was the son of God, the son of man. And there are things about the divinity of God that we we have no capacity to understand and certainly no capacity to be in conflict with. And so we see that in this case of the brother's conscience, it is just overwhelmed. And, uh, and, uh, it's amazing. In verse 24, then, uh, we see uh, that, uh, Joseph, as Reuben talked, as they talked in Hebrew between themselves, not knowing that they could be understood. Um, my, my, my son Rich is a sheriff, you know, or, I mean, a deputy up in north of Detroit, and um, he knows a few phrases of Spanish that he will speak with Spanish prisoners that come in, and then uh, they, he, they, they will be jabbering away, and then he'll tell them to can we give them the imperative, sit down, shut up. <laughs> sort of thing, and then he'll just leave it at that. But then he'll put the fear in them of what they what they think. Oh my word, this guy knows everything we've been saying. <laughs> so he'll, he'll basically try to uh, control them a little bit in that way. Well, here the same thing happens with Jacob or with Joseph on the reverse. His brother, he hears his brother speaking. He knows what they're speaking about, and uh, um, he hears he hears Reuben say, "Do not sin against the boy." He, uh, he, he did not know, perhaps even unto this time, that Reuben remonstrated with his brothers, the oldest with the youngest. And uh, he said, Reuben said, you would not listen. Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. And this breaks Joseph's heart to see how his brothers are meditating and turning these things over in their minds and how Reuben... Uh, he knows now for sure that Reuben, there was at least one of them that spoke up for him at the time. And, you know, it was when Reuben was gone from them that they then uh, pulled this, uh, pulled the, 
beat off where they uh, they sold him to the caravan. And then when Reuben came back, he was dismayed and, and wondered what he would tell uh, Jacob, his, his father or their father. And so uh, when this happened, then uh, it says, and, and he turned, that is, Joseph turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him, bound him before their eyes. Um, we think of how Jesus at the cross, it really, really reminds us Jesus wept because he, um, he was so concerned about his people, and he, he realized that he must win redemption for his people or they would die beneath the weight of their sin and for the want of righteousness before the judgment of God. And so um, Joseph wept, and it's very parallel to the Jesus. And uh, the, the, um, the attribute of God that is exemplified here in the Imago Dei is the love of God. Um, in time, this is not in eternity. In eternity, all things are settled. There are the elect and there are the reprobate. But in time, as God has created time, and as he interfaces in time through his only begotten son, uh, God could um, God could have a kind of love for even the reprobate, Judas, those kinds of people, because he, he knew that they were in the... In the um, the seat of judgment and the, the decisions they were making was going to be was going to have eternal consequences. Uh, Joseph wept for them because he, he loved his brothers even to, despite their sin against him. He had this affection for them, and so uh, God has an affection for us as He publishes it to, uh, to, to us in the Word of God and via His Son Jesus. He has a love for us. But it will only last for a time. When when the final judgment comes, when the door of the ark is shut, and the floods of judgment come pouring down upon that will be too late. And at that point, uh, the, the restrained uh, judgment of God and the reluctant love of God will no longer be in play. At that time, it will be the time for God's omnipotent wrath to fall upon us. And we can barely consider that. I I mean, it's bad enough to consider a, a man, a man, or a father, or a mother filled with wrath against their child. If we're the child, how much we want to have them love us! How how um, how broken we are to hear the harshness of their voice, the upsetness, the anger, the disappointment. But to think of this coming from God, and to think of this coming from the point of perfection. And uh, without without the want of any failure of knowledge whatsoever, but God will know exactly why we are being judged, why we are being condemned to the lake of fire. He will know that He will know that we are right. We are worthy of that, and so He will constrain us to go there. He will compel us to go there, and there will be no turning back. And so, this scene before Joseph is uh, represents the time of grace. When there's the opportunity for love, and I would just encourage all of us here, in the name of the Lord, let us receive grace. Well, grace is well, grace is an opportunity for us. They say that Whitfield would break into tears almost every time that he preached in those colonial days in the 1700s. 
30s and 40s when he came over here to America to preach. And, and uh, it was these kinds of things that would break Whitfield because he was preaching to people. And, but he, he had the kind of knowledge that Joseph had. He could see before him the things that were true and the things that were not. And despite all of the confusions of men, he could see that this was a time of grace. And it broke his heart to think that there were many that would leave from that uh, audience. Not having cast themselves upon Christ, not having obtained in Christ everything that they would need to be satisfactory to the living God. And so we can see this in Joseph's, uh, in Joseph's mind here as he turns from his brothers, leaves the room, weeps. Probably the court had not seen Joseph behave this way, but then Joseph comes back and he's got himself together and he gives his words here, his final words to his brothers. They bind, they bind Simeon and uh, send the rest back on a mission uh, that we read about in the next passage. But all of this, all of this reveals unto us the greatness of the Imagio Dei, the image of God in us. Brothers and sisters, if you need a sermon preached to you, you just need to look in the mirror. Just look in the mirror and reflect upon who you are, what God has made, and all that you see. You see so much more than you than you give out normally. You see like the brothers see here when they were convicted. You see things that you even wouldn't admit to yourself, but then you see them in a moment, and it's clear as day. And so the word of God uh, comes and uh, and uh, makes us naked. They, they, uh, Joseph accused them of denuding or is trying to see the nakedness of Egypt. But this account uh, helps us to see our own nakedness. And uh, we should be ashamed, but not for long, because we ought to flee to Christ and in him find the, our consolation. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst bless us in these words, oh, as the Bible, as the word of God, not thy life-giving spirit. Oh, bless us, O oh Lord, through these words. Help us through this story and through the account to have flashbacks of our own. Help, help us, O oh Lord, to have them lead us directly and immediately to Jesus Christ, that we might be beloved in him. When thou didst look down upon him at his baptism or ordination, Thou didst say, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Oh, God, we yearn to hear those words about ourselves, and we will if we are dressed in the garments of our Lord. Bless us in those, O oh Lord. Help us to enjoy the righteousness that he gives us. Help us to rejoice at the forgiveness which we have, at the destruction of our sin. The destruction of it, it's, it's, it's no more. If he has died for our sin, it is no more. Only righteousness takes its place. Bless us, O oh God, in him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.